LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Joanna Demers. The idea of apocalypse is truly ancient. Although the word essentially translates as a revelation of knowledge, today the term is commonly used in reference to end-time scenarios or to the end of the world in general. Almost every culture and civilization has, or has had, its own apocalyptic tradition, often believing the end time already begun and the end itself imminent. Whether self-inflicted or supernatural, cosmic or divine, apocalyptic thinking infuses all corners of culture, from the mysteries and meanings of religion and art, to our beliefs about the past, present and future, and the values which guide how we see ourselves, others and the world at large, the dread of impending doom never seems far away. During the late 20th and early 21st centuries, This once unspoken unease grew into a pervasive terror. Nuclear annihilation, dehumanizing technology, ecological disaster and rampant totalitarianism now apparently conspire to deliver at best the dystopian nightmares of Brave New World or 1984 or, at worst, the complete destruction of all life on Earth. Through this forbidden zone roams Joanna Demers with her books Drone and Apocalypse and Anatomy of Thought Fiction, which take a sideways look at apocalyptic culture. Our discussion today centres mainly on music and the fear of the future, which has given us both an unhealthy obsession with the sound of the past and bleak but often beautiful new sounds reflecting the contradictory dread and longing which characterise our species at this moment in time. Hello and welcome, Joanna, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, today, Joanna, we're going to talk a little bit about ideas inspired by a couple of your books. Um, first one I read was Anatomy of Thought Fiction, and I followed that up by reading Drone and Apocalypse. Uh, before we talk about those, however, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. Sure. Uh, so I'm a, a musicologist by training, and I teach uh, courses on music history at the University of Southern California, which is a university in Los Angeles. Uh, I tend to teach classes on recent popular and contemporary music. Um, I am an aspiring closet philosopher with no formal training, but I read a lot of philosophy, and I'm... Um, very indebted to Hegel, um, 
who's a German philosopher that gave us a lot to think about in terms of aesthetics as well as broader metaphysical questions. So to the extent that I can, I try to work uh, Hegel and related aesthetic theory into my writing. Um, I think I'm getting away with murder because I get to talk about wonderful music and get paid for it. So I'm very lucky. Okay, well, the, the two books I mentioned, um, once again, Anatomy of Thought Fiction and then Drone and Apocalypse. Those titles are a little bit enigmatic, probably for most people, not quite sure what those might be about. So before we start um, in depth, perhaps you could just give us a brief synopsis of both. Um, the format of each is slightly unusual, but just give us a basic premise behind um, each of them. Sure. <clears throat> I'll go in chronological order. Um, so the drone book, Drone and Apocalypse, uh, takes the form of a fictional exhibit catalog. So when we go to museums and we uh, attend exhibits, there are usually books or some sort of publications that lead us through the exhibit and explain the significance of the artworks. Uh, I came up with the idea of uh, a fictitious future, so 200 years in the future, uh, where people are trying to figure out how we in the early 21st century tick why we're so preoccupied with apocalypse. And I, I uh, take the leap of faith that the apocalypse that perhaps many of us are fearing currently will never happen and that Earth will continue, human uh, society will continue. Uh, but nevertheless, the folks in the 23rd century want to know why we are so pre preoccupied with it. So they collect artworks and music that come out of this uh, apocalyptic impulse. And they come across, um, it's basically a diary by a failed artist, a woman named Cynthia Way, who's a fictitious character, who writes about apocalyptic art and specifically drone music with the uh, um, invincible certainty that apocalypse is imminent. And so she is uh, writing very passionately about drone music as being the harbinger of this apocalypse. Um, so that's the drone book. Uh, Anatomy of Thought Fiction is a related project in that it is supposedly published by this fictitious organization that exists two centuries in the future. Um, the, their, their focus of attention has changed. Instead of it being on Cynthia Way, uh, it is now on the musicologist named Joanna de Mers, excuse me, um, who writes a rather cantankerous book in which she asks the question, why do people believe things they know are not true? Um, the truth of the matter is I wrote this in the build-up to the 2016 presidential election in the United States, and I finished the project before the election took place, but I was still trying to contend with what I uh, explain as thought fictions. Uh, thought fictions are basically um, utilitarian lies that we tell in order to achieve some greater, uh, it's usually just a greater intellectual goal. Thought fictions are not necessarily sinister. It can be just uh, useful fictions that we put on the table in order to discuss something. Uh, and the book, Anatomy, focuses on many thought fictions that guide our discourse about popular music today. 
the two big ones that uh, anatomy talks about are contradictory. One is music is alive, and the other is music is dying or music is dead. And uh, as weird and kind of abstract as these sounds, there are actually very concrete examples of both of these types of talk fictions in popular music journalism, discourse, fan discussion, uh, and also statements from artists themselves. So uh, although, again, I, I, I don't have, at, at the point of finishing the book, I didn't have a, an election outcome to discuss. I tried um, uh, obscurely to relate these thought fictions in music to other thought fictions that we tell ourselves about politics, about philosophy, about our own mortality. Okay, well, in my introduction to the show, I said a little bit for people who don't know about what drone music is, um, reminded people about ambience, a lot of people have heard of that, uh, and noise music, just to orientate people, you know, listeners who are just uh, those to whom those concepts are somewhat alien. So we don't need to worry too much about defining all of that. Um, okay. One of the first thoughts I had reading the both books, actually, because uh, I kind of, I read them actually... I give the impression that I read them one after the other, but I actually sort of read them simultaneously by dipping into one and then back to the other. <laughs> but it's a general thought about music and evolution, not only the evolution of music, but the evolution of the species and how music might be part of that or might reflect some of that. And also music as a response to our environment uh, versus it being some sort of inherent need to express ourselves that, you know, that our species perhaps might always have had. You know, we think of some people who've got the um, uh, idea that perhaps music or um, even something like rhythmic drumming, you know, might have predated um, actual spoken language or writing. Sure. Um, I, I came to Charles Darwin's writings very late in my life, um, but in, in preparing to write Anatomy, I came across what he had to say about the development of music uh, in primates and in birds. And he very eloquently argues that uh, music is basically just another means that uh, mating animals have to attract one another. So by definition, music predates humanity. Um, it's not something that is... Uh, that, that came after linguistic development for us. It, it came before us, period. Um, and that, you know, I, I think there, there, there might be a bit of a, I don't want to say lazy, but kind of a, a casual usage of the word evolution. Like um, when we talk about a certain artist and we say his or her sound evolved, um, and that's fine. I mean, you know, that that's how we use the word in, in spoken language, but when we return to what, for instance, Darwin went when he spoke about evolution and what role music actually did have in, in evolution, that, that is, well, it's, it's interesting and it's a fruitful way forward. It's interesting that you remind us about music in other species and uh, its function and, of course, predating even humanity because for a lot of people, music can be dumb and it can be high art. Again, it's all very subjective depending on your view, but overall, especially at the high art end of it, music is seen at its best as this 
ex- great expression of the human spirit and soul. And that birdsong, well, that's all very nice, but as you say, it's got some sort of base um, evolutionary function. It's not like a symphony. It's not Beethoven, you know, it's not Bach, it's not Wagner. I wonder about that sometimes. I, I, I don't know enough about animal behavior to say for sure, but I, I have, you know, just like anyone else, I've spent time on YouTube and have seen random videos where you see, I guess it's birds, who will see a human participate in some sort of rudimentary musical activity, playing a drum or tapping out a rhythm, and then the bird will start to participate and imitate and eventually repeat it even when the human stops doing it. There is an awareness um, uh, of repetition, which we then, depending on our particular mood and our particular point in history, will either hold up and say repetition is great or repetition is dumb, repetition is mindless. But um, it, you're also making me think of this funny story. It's not a story. It's it's, it's Kant, the, the, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, who's talking about uh, the power of music and how great it is. But he contrasts the moment where you, you have uh, an instrumentalist who's doing a really great imitation of a nightingale, and it's very beautiful. But the moment that a real bird actually starts singing, that music is rendered useless. So for, for all, you know, that especially the later German philosophers who were talking about the power, the power of music, um, that it expresses the highest in humanity, you have arguably the most important German philosopher of all who says... Um, Music's fine, but when you have a real bird singing, it's much better. <laughs> Maybe uh, we're the only species uh, on this planet anyway to have the luxury in terms of time and resources to do things like music or sex or food or whatever, just beyond basic necessity, uh, just to fetishize it and commodify it. And, uh, oh, yeah. you know, just to do it to excess and overdrive uh, because we can. Absolutely, yeah. It, Darwin talks about the fact that in, in most animal species, there is uh, a, a kind of built-in uh, excess of reproduction. We uh, observe in many different species that thousands or if not millions of eggs of any particular animal are fertilized and you have thousands of animals hatching because... Only of a, a litter of a thousand, you might only have two animals surviving into adulthood. And it, it, what's funny is that with humans, it's the opposite. We have small litters. We have usually only one child at a time. As human history has grown, has, has gone on, uh, our ability to protect ourselves and to nourish ourselves has increased. So the excess is now not so much... Um, reproductive as what we do with the time that other species just can't count on. We have so much extra time, so we can talk about food or sex or music in these ways that we're just would never have been applicable. Sound has clearly been extremely important to the human species. We go back to, well, as far back as we seem to be able to go in terms of, you know, anthropology. Um, I'll just, as an aside, mention to listeners, uh, if they're on legalizefreedom.com, to run the search box and look for the shows that I did with Paul Devereaux, one called Stone Age Soundtracks, 
Um, another one with Gary Evans that was called Listening to the Past. And of course, the sound stage, the sound world, thousands, even millions of years ago, was very different on Earth. But the bottom line being sound has always been very, very important, uh, very significant. And it's most interesting. We'll, we'll come on to talk about about drone and noise music, etc., a little bit later in the interview. But just while I'm on the subject, it's interesting how some of the sounds that have been coming out, particularly towards the millennium and now in the early part of the 21st century, have hearkened back to some kind of primitive, primeval aspect of our ourselves that perhaps has been buried for a long time. Yeah, um, never really... <laughs> The person who could talk really well about this would actually be Julian Cope, right? Because he's the he's the um, important figure in post-punk music. He writes a lot about kraut rock and and Japanese experimental rock, and he has this other vocation as a writer on Neolithic culture. And at, if memory serves, he talks a lot about this. That some of the best moments in punk and post-punk and um, Japanese noise music seem to talk about this or to, to, to bring up this, this primal, um, buried sound scape that, that, uh, we, again, we have the luxury of being able to bring to the surface now because we have more time, we have more technology. Yes, Julian Cope. As, um, I, th- I think he did more than one volume of his book, Kraut Rock Sampler, uh, which, yeah. which came out, I, mean, I think that was in the 90s. Uh, mm-hmm. But also he had, oh, what, I can't remember what it was called now, a big orange and blue book. It was one of his megalithic Tour of Britain books, a fanta- yeah. fantastic thing. But yeah, he brings these two things together. So you're absolutely right. He would be the go-to guy for that. Maybe I will go to, maybe I will go to him for yeah. that. Um, another thing that comes up in uh, your writing uh, and I read Simon Reynolds' book, Retromania, and this is a book that I talked about in the two shows that I did um, on Vaporwave, which I sent you the links to. And that's the, the the trend that we've seen again in the late 20th century, particularly as the millennium approached, But uh, which I actually expected to tail off once we got into the 21st century. But if anything, it has accelerated. And that is this advance towards... if. It, if it can be called an advance towards um, atavism, you know, a kind of a fear of the future, which has resulted in a sort of return to music, which ironically once was seen as the future. Um, and this reminded me of uh, the, the 1979 movie Buck Rogers in the 25th century, where they were seeing how music would sound in the future. And the music they actually presented was was pretty much, you know, a, a sort of slightly hybridized music of that was just around the corner, you know, sort of disco right. and the electro stuff that was about to happen. So this is something that we're very much is happening now. And there's some amazing music, some amazing sounds are coming out of this, looking back to look forward. But equally, it does run the gamut, doesn't it? There is a spectrum through to just the, the worst kind of like digging around in the garbage uh, in the mm-hmm. hope in the hope of trying to say, oh, well, this sold quite well originally. So how about we do a a tenth rate version of this, you know, and maybe we can make like one twentieth of the money and we'll be okay. Yeah, yeah, it's so much of the, the, the retro thing seems to be driven by market considerations. So it, at least the film studios in the United States seem to want to plumb every last extant comic book hero 
what have you. Um, and the choices there are, are questionable. I, my, my brother, who's very into history, keeps asking, why don't they just take some other historical stories that haven't been developed into movies and make movies out of them? There's plenty in history that could make for a great film. Um, but they seem to be falling into the, um, not only the old, but the old that has already been done once or twice or three times. Music, it's, it's not so bad, I think. Um, I mean, you know, it, it, because all of us have this ability now to find any particular musical niche, we're, we're not at, we're not subject to the whims of mainstream radio like all of us were 30 or 40 years ago. And I think that that, at least for now, allows us to have a sense that we're freer and we can discover uh, better music if we just put a little time into it. Um, I'm not actually uh, subscribed to Spotify, but I have friends are and they tell me about the wonders of the playlist on Spotify. But I just use YouTube and it seems to detect my taste well enough that it gives me stuff that it, it's very interesting and very, um, well, it's new, I haven't heard it, and I don't have to pay for it, which is great. Uh, and it, it is, a lot of the stuff I, I'm hearing is retro-minded, but it, it's it's not all crap. Oh, no, far from it, um, as I was saying. Um the I know and the comment I made about music that was once seen as the future is now being mined as a source of um uh ideas in the present. Um and some of it is great. Um yeah. but I wonder um when some of the music that is being referenced by um well a lot of what we're talking about here is electronic music, when when some of the music that's coming out now, uh or in, in recent years certainly that, that is really, you know, sparks of fire that is drawing on what has already happened i'm wondering is the sense of what's possible for better or worse now being almost completely delineated by the past because some of the in the early days of electronic music some of what was happening i know i know that the history of electronic music in many ways is just a history of technology but some of the early stuff was like seemed so radical and was mm-hmm. genu- genuinely unlike anything else that had been heard before and now no matter how great the album, and actually I've discovered quite a few artists and albums as a result of reading your two books, which I'm delighted about. It's still kind of like, oh, this is this is amazing. And it sounds a bit like this, and it sounds a bit like this, and it could have come out in 1975 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is, is there anything new in the world in that sense? There's always something new, but I, 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 I agree. I mean, I think Simon Reynolds' book on Retromania is one of the smartest writings about music to come out in 10 years. It's, it's unimpeachable, uh, research. But when I, when I ask my students, I'll, I'll, I'll play something for them that is clearly retro influenced and they know it. They, they listen to it. We discuss it. They are not necessarily keyed into the retro aspect of it. So I don't think that the, our sense, our meaning, the, the older folks who remember when the 70s and 80s happened, I don't think our sense of uh, the history of these sounds is necessarily as present for these young whippersnappers, you know, these 18-year-olds who, who 
uh, I think are experiencing a lot of this for the first time. And it's, it, for them, it, it neither sounds old nor new, but in a sense of futuristic, it just sounds, uh, like one more thing that one can do. And that, that might be, that might be sad for us at, at the, those of us who are older and who used to think of science fiction and ele- electronic music as uh, ways of imagining a future. Um, I'm not sure that it's a loss. It's just very different for younger people. You know, some of, some of them are very scholarly and encyclopedic, and they will take the trouble to study the originals of 1980s synth pop, for instance, and then they will come up with an homage to it or take influences from it and put it into their new music. But a lot of listeners just are hearing it for the first time, and, and it's, it's just new music for them. Well, yeah, the, I mentioned Vaporwave earlier on, which, again, is another sub-sub-sub-sub-genre that uh, listeners can look up if they wish. And I did a, a two-part show with a young guy called Grafton Tanner, uh, another, oh. another Zero Books <laughs> author, actually. And he, he's very, very switched on and very scholarly. And when you listen to him speak about music we're hearing today and it's looking back to the past, but also the past itself, the 70s, 80s, and even the 90s now, which for some people is, is, seems like a lifetime away, He's got some real, really great insights on it. And once again, to plug my own stuff, I, I think listeners to this would get really get something out of listening to the interviews I did with him. You, I'm taking it to some to a greater or lesser extent. You're aware of the vaporware, uh, sorry, vaporwave. Vaporware makes it sound like Tupperware, doesn't it? <laughs> Which, funny enough, actually, I've seen a few photographs of Tupperware uh, on vaporwave album covers. So. Yeah, that, that would go well together. <laughs> But um, it was actually two little things that came together was um, when I'd read Grafton's book and then when I read yours, a reference came up to Glass Candy, this yes. <laughs> this US uh, retroact. Now, I know the band uh, have gone through a number of different styles. You know, they've kind of not, it's not been the same all the way through their discography. But there's one that you mentioned in your book. Um, I think it was Drawn in Apocalypse, but that's by the by. And uh, I, I did say we'd have a few music segments in the show. So what I'm going to do now is spin a minute or so of the Glass Candy track Digital Versicolor. And uh, after we've enjoyed that, I'll get you to say a word on it, if that's okay. Shines the stars. 
Okay, well, we just heard a clip there from the Glass Candy track, Digital Versicolor. Uh, as I mentioned just before we heard that, Joanna, that was brought up in your book. So uh, just give us your thoughts on that track. Why, why, why did you mention that? It's, it's a really great track. Um, it, this is in the part of Glass Candy's discography where they're, they're sounding very Italo disco. So this, this period in early 80s, Italian electronic music that um, features kind of a Giorgio Moroder inspired synthesizer, repetitive sixteenth notes, um, and I, I like this because it's it's referential without being derivative. I think it, it it's as if you someone is strolling through a museum and sees a painting they really like and decides that they're going to go home and not copy it and not be uh, slavishly faithful to it, but to give themselves perhaps a year to develop whatever they saw in that one particular painting and see what spins out of it. Um, I think I connect this track to other invocations of late seventies and early eighties electronic music. So, Jean-Michel Jarre and Moroder and the soundtrack to Blade Runner by Vangelis. Um, what's wonderful about today is that our ability to access most of this older music instantaneously allows a lot of artists to, to dive in and to develop these uh, paintings, if you will, and to really kind of make a study out of one sound and to make it really good and, and, and stick together. So it's not kind of a fly-off... Uh, you know, I took five minutes to try to imitate Marauder's style. Um, it's something much more gripping. Yeah, I think it's just a great example of what we've been talking about, of where there's something that's referencing the past, but it's, as you, well, you've summed it up best there yourself, um, but without just rehashing it mindlessly, it uh, it really brings, I mean, again, it's, I bet one of the best tests, I think, for this sort of thing is like if that track had been released contemporaneously with some of the things it's inspired by, um, could it have been a massive hit? Yes, I think it probably would have been, actually. <laughs> yeah. And it reminds right. us, again, about the power of songwriting um, above and beyond just sound itself. You know, you can have the sound, you can have the equipment, the studio, the producer, whatever that someone else had, but have you got the songs? So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. In Anatomy of Thought Fiction, uh, you're talking a little bit about, and you mentioned this earlier, this idea of music dying out. And this kind of gets into an apocalyptic notion of end times and that, um, you know, resource scarcity, then everything's just kind of coming to an end and we're mining and remining and recycling things because we're running out of new ideas, whether we're running out of oil or running out of rare earth metals or running out of musical ideas. It's kind of mm-hmm. all this kind of cycle of um, everything getting a little bit thinner. And uh, as, as we move towards some kind of end of something, whether it leads to a rebirth or whether it's just terminal remains to be seen. Um, the idea of music degenerating or becoming diluted popular music for the most part is certainly not new. And I think there are probably people who felt that when Elvis sprang on the scene, for every um, critic who might have said, um, you know, oh, fresh and new and exciting, there's probably somebody uh, sat at home with their classical records just going, oh, it's all over, you know, it's the end. 
And I was reminded of, of this just a couple of days ago, even though it's been a few weeks since I finished reading your books, uh, on the BBC just a couple of days ago. I don't remember even how the original news piece got started, but when I came into it, they were talking about how intros, that is to say introductions to pop and rock songs, had be, been getting shorter and shorter over time. And they, oh. and they contrasted things like Hotel California, you know, how long it takes how long it takes them to actually for the singer to open his mouth. And then they gave yeah. an example of a recent uh, chart song um, here in the UK and the introduction was one second. Now, there's nothing wrong with a band playing one note and then the singer comes in, but they, that somebody had actually done a statistical analysis. So this just reminded me of this idea of a, you know, fin de siècle notion. And, and you explore that in, uh, in Anatomy of Thought Fiction. Yeah, I, I, I don't think Stairway to Heaven could be written today. That's one thing that uh, Retromania will not be able to uh, uh, <laughs> replicate. No, that's true. That goes back to my comment about songs, isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. One other thing that that connects to, actually, is kind of a distinction between timbre and um, structure. Uh, I don't want to make this sound like something it's not, but the the ability to, assuming you have industry backing and assuming you don't have a label that's pressuring you to make your songs under three minutes, um, the, the, the sort of iconic groups of the 70s that we think of when we think of long introductions, so the Eagles, Led Zeppelin, The Doors, I think they were still approaching their music in a, with a, a composerly attention towards structure. So thinking, you know, I'm going to gradually add in different elements, uh, start with a rhythmic pattern maybe, or uh, I'll start with just an acoustic guitar and then I'll layer in other things. Um, that was reflective of the materials with which they had to work. And as, you know, time has gone on and, and we've added synthesizers to the arsenal um, in a way, you can cover a lot more ground in a shorter period of, period of time just by using the different sounds that the synthesizer has afforded us. So it's not necessarily that there's a, a lack of formal thinking, but rather that the formal thinking has become almost instantaneous because it, it, your, your forms are now the timbres themselves, the colors of the sounds. So in thinking about writing about music, and there's the old cliche that writing about music is like dancing about architecture, uh, the inference being that it's ultimately futile. I don't know if you've, in your writing about music, whether it's always been in what we could loosely call, you know, the academ- um, academic arena. But I, I started writing about music in the 1980s just through passion. You know, I discovered something that I was so enthusiastic about that I wanted to tell other people about it. So you you published something about it. And then it was very much about the music and what I was hearing, what I was experiencing. I write very little about music now, almost never. But what I noticed in the interim was that towards the end, certainly, in writing about music, uh, what I was writing about mainly were personalities, events, news items you know what the people behind the music were doing you know what they were eating who they were seen with that sort of thing and i just find a lot of music journalism orientates around that now of course you get your opinion pieces where people dive into things but outside of academia 
that's what it felt like really towards the end. I had to concern myself with, oh, so-and-so was seen with so-and-so. And I was, yeah, okay, that's interesting up to a point, but that's not what I want to write about because that's that's celebrity stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, so there are different problems, right? <laughs> what you're talking about is, is, is definitely a big one. That uh, I, I guess because we're, we're in a celebrity culture, we it, there again there are industry pressures to make our our interaction with music uh, pass through the bridge pass through the tunnel if you will of the celebrity so the personality who's creating it and there's that there's pressure to adhere to that format if you want to get involved in, in professional journalism and on 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 the other end of the spectrum I'm I'm coming from an academic background and there are there are certain expectations for proper academic writing about music um, it, funnily enough academic writing about music it, it, in, insofar as it is musicology uh, owes a great deal to other academic uh, disciplines so uh, comparative literature philosophy cultural studies, etc. And those, those disciplines have traditionally expected the writer to be approaching the topic almost, almost, I'd say like a scientist, in that uh, we are encouraged not to talk excessively about our own subject position within the, the, the writing we are expected to try to be good historians and to back up all claims with proof to work with primary sources as well as secondary, etc. And these are all good. These are all forms of writing that work well. And I, I one of the reasons that I chose to, wrote, to write Drone and Apocalypse and Anatomy of Goth Fiction is because I, it, it is rare nowadays for us to come a, across opportunities to write if not out-and-out out fiction about music, then at least speculatively about music. Um, and it's great fun. I mean, as, as you know yourself, it's, it's wonderful to talk about the, the ideas that spin out of music, whether those ideas are factual or otherwise. This is what music is supposed to do to us, right? A note uh, on the idea you talked about music dying, put in mind, again, something that I, I read all the time, have been reading probably since the dawn of the millennium was that you know rock rock is dead and it's occurred to me that a lot of the people saying this were actually you know well entrenched in the music establishment but to what extent do you think talk about you know music dying or whatever is really another way of saying that the business is dying or you know the old way of marketing music um, of harvesting revenue from music is going away or has almost completely gone away to the extent that it has to do with industry concerns, it is true that, that the old way of making music is, is dying and in many quarters is already dead. Um, most, most popular artists make money not through record sales, but through touring, so through merchandise sales, through ticket sales. I recall in Anatomy of Pop Fiction with some embarrassment that I was part of the... <laughs> academic hand-wringing about this issue and saying, oh my gosh, well, the music industry is poised to collapse and what will happen afterwards and this is the end. 
And it wasn't the end. It was just that a different business model was in the process of being developed. Um, and perhaps there are fewer fat cats. There are, there are well, definitely we have concrete proof that there are fewer major labels, uh, that one can expect to make less money as a popular artist, um, even if you get signed to a label, even if you're successful, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the real anomaly was not the, the anomaly is not what's happening now. The anomaly is what was happening between, say, the years 1955 and 1995. That was the weird time. That was the exceptional time when you could have a handful of popular music artists who could make insane amounts of money. Um, there are still a few of those today, but there are far fewer than there were 20 or 30 years ago. Um, the, the idea that we could have a Paul McCartney or a David Bowie who... Uh, each were or are rich enough to buy islands for themselves. That that I don't think will be as much uh, of a fixture of popular music as we go along in the future. Well, the, sorry, car carry on. It, it doesn't mean that music is dying. It just means that the revenue streams, the ways of of accessing revenue, of collecting revenue, have changed. And it doesn't help if you have. You know, distribution mechanisms that hand out the product for free. Then you have to figure out, well, uh, if we're giving the product away for free, we have to make people, we have to charge people for something else. So how do we convince them that they should pay for that something? Interesting thought that comes from what you've just said. Have you considered that the anomalous period that you just referred to, in fact, overlaps with what can also be seen as a greater anomalous period in our developed industrial societies in general? In terms Absolutely. of like you know material affluence and uh, energy available to us and everything else. Absolutely, yeah. This is this is something that again, when I talk about it in my classes, the students I, I see that like the eighteen to twenty year olds, they are not used to thinking about this. I say to them, uh, the idea of the teenager, the category of the teenager, didn't exist really before the twentieth century. Of course. <laughs> Anyone who's lucky to, to, to make it to adulthood has to pass through that period between the age of 13 and 19. But the idea that a teenager was a special person uh, with special taste who needed to assert his or her distinction from their parents, that was all uh, a, a very special, exceptional fabrication of post-war affluence. And it, it was fueled by the fact that for the victors of World War II, uh, when soldiers go, go home, they have babies, the babies grow up into teenagers. For the first time in history, they are given spending money. This, this is a, a laughably new idea. I mean, can you think about farmers at any point in human history into the 20th century being able to give their children spending money? It, it just, it would never have happened. At least, it, you know, unless you're talking about the super, super, super rich folks in any given context. So yes, the, the, the fact that the music industry had this special exceptional period uh, was fueled by the fact that we had the teenager who was given this special extra money who could go out and attend concerts and everything that we think kind of automatically is, is spinning out from that, that the cult of the uh, pop music celebrity and, and the meaningfulness of popular music to different generations, all of that spins out of this uh, 
uh, historically anomalous affluence that certain nations experienced after World War II. Well, I have to deal with, uh, in this day and age, people who are half my age and they're, they're, they're whinging or whining about something or other that they can't do or that they have to do. And uh, oh, my mum's doing this for you and what will my dad think? Uh, you know, these are people who are grown adults. And I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> a few hundred years ago, at 16, you could have been captaining a ship of the Royal Navy, you know. <laughs> at, at your at, at your age, you know, your mid-20s, you could have been lining up to be president of the USA. So, you know, get a grip. You know, you've got a, you've got nothing to complain about, really. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, okay, well, we'll turn now to talk a little bit more specifically about Drone and Apocalypse, that being the, the title of your book, but also just Drone in itself and the Apocalypse, just as a, an idea embedded in the human psyche. As mentioned earlier, you know, I talked in my introduction about drone music and ambient and noise and the intersection thereof, just to give people a flavour of what we're talking about. And out of all those, I had mentioned that ambient music might be something that a lot of people are familiar with because they might think New Age, they might think, mm-hmm. you know, Brian Eno, they might think that's sort of like um, immersion tank sort of music. Sure. And, uh, and indeed, ambient can range just as a, a broad term, everything from the most fragrant sort of floral flock wallpaper right through to just some of the most dark, disturbing sounds that for some people are bordering on unlistenable. And you do mention, uh, you know, across the board, you cite quite a lot of this music in the book. Um, in, ter- in terms of the nexus with the idea of apocalypse, one thing I want to uh, turn to first is uh, William Basinski, because uh, you're a fan I am independently as well. It's one artist that I didn't actually discover through reading your book. Um, <laughs> so um, I just want you to say a little bit about your... I know this is difficult to sum up because you've written a whole book about it and I'm sure you could go on about it and you may well do for the rest of your career. But just this, as I mentioned, this nexus where what is it about this sound, this music and the idea of apocalypse? Um, some, of, some of the artists that you talk about have this... Um, preoccupation with apocalypse whether it's at the forefront of their thinking and their creativity or whether it's somewhere at the back subconsciously others don't but their music can still be very evocative of something before we talk about Basinski specifically can you just say a word about all of that sure Uh, the reason that I I argue in in the drone book that drone is especially uh, emblematic of apocalyptic thinking apocalyptic aesthetics is, well, I mean, you can just go down a list of artists, uh, past and present, who have used uh, sustained tones, which is what drone music is, as a way of talking about impending collapse or just an impending end. Um, it really defend, it depends entirely on the artist. Some people uh, are expecting very bad things to happen in the near future and, and will write their music accordingly. Um, one other artist who, who's, whose drone music I, I think is among the very best is the, the French composer Ilian Fadi, uh, who is uh, a practicing Tibetan Buddhist. And her approach to, to drone music is informed uh, at every point by an awareness of, of the presence of death. Uh, death is there for all of us. You know, it's just a matter of time. Uh, and it's not a particularly lugubrious or morbid uh, emphasis on death. Uh, it's not particularly joyous, although there are moments of joy in her music, but it is 
um, simply what's powerful about her approach to, to drone is that it's not trying to be harrowing or shocking. Uh, and it most of the time stays away from what we would consider to be very dissonant, very harsh sounds. At times there, there are dissonances, but, um, if you look at the titles for many of her pieces, uh, one of the major pieces in her catalog is called uh, Trilogy of Death. Um, it, it, it is, a, it is a, a formal concern. It makes its way into the formal makeup of her music. Um, but it, all that to say what, what, what you had already said, that Drone seems to have a lot of resonance for apocalyptic thinking. Okay, then, well, we mentioned William Basinski, and I will just say at this point that any of the music that we've played, uh, listeners can find links to the artist's website on the interview page for this show. But in the meantime, let's hear a little bit from William Basinski's series of albums, The Disintegration Loops, and uh, this is one of my favourite segments from The Disintegration Loops, DLP3. Okay, so that was a short segment from William Basinski's album, The Disintegration Loops. Um, I say album, it was actually a series of four albums uh, that were released in 2002-2003. Of all his extensive discography, I'm mentioning these in the context of Apocalypse because they were done in the wake of 9-11, obviously from the dates, but they're made extremely poignant and, from my point of view, very, very powerful as they were directly inspired by the events. Um, you've only got to look at the artwork for the albums and then you learn of Basinski witnessing the events of 9-11 and then there's a story behind the, the recordings that he used and how he actually, at the original tape recordings, you can tell us more about this. And um, of course, for many people, politically, socially, economically, 9-11 has since been seen as the sort of the start of a, almost a slow motion apocalypse. Um, you know, of things unraveling. So, what's wonderful about the disintegration loops is that it it's it's a, a, a kind of an epitome of, of apocalyptic drone at a very material level. So, as you just said, uh, Bizinski had these tapes that uh, he had recorded in the early '80s of just loops, different synthesizer music, 
and uh, like many artists, he, he, he made the he made the object, he, he recorded the music, and then he put it away, put it uh, in some boxes, and went on to other things. And um, magnetic tape ages. It doesn't age very well. It ages rather quickly. And he um, had the good idea, in I, I think starting in 2000, to go back to uh, his boxes of these tapes and to try to digitize them, knowing that um, they would not age very well, uh, that they would eventually disintegrate beyond redemption. In the process of replaying them, they disintegrated before his very ears and eyes. So with each successive loop, there was less and less magnetic dust on the tape. And so if you listen to any of the disintegration loops, they are literally what happens when you have the material uh, medium uh, falling apart in front of you. And that just combined with, I mean, the writing of the music is, is, I think it's easy to take it for granted. It's so beautiful and it's so poignant that we pass by it in silence, but it's very, very beautiful writing. Uh, it's very simple, um, but it, it, he, he wasn't just, uh, you know, experimenting and put, putting whatever down on tape. It was very, very sensible music, very sensitive. Uh, and so yeah, yeah, it's it's as good as you can get in terms of apocalyptic drone. I find at this stage in my life, and I, I think I said this in the the interviews I did with Grafton Tanner, that in some ways ambient, and when I use that term, I'm incorporating drone and other sorts of you know genres and subgenres that might get wrapped up in that, is mm-hmm. almost the only thing that that makes sense to me now in a way. Um, <laughs> it's not that I have lost the love for rock music that I grew up with you know in informative years those albums those artists they still do the business as much as ever if you put them on you know turn it up to 11 and you know off off we go but I don't feel the urge to get up in the morning and just crank it up it just doesn't quite feel right I like to bookend my days with something that's like some kind of serenity and I really it's not just because I'm getting old I promise you it's it's at a deeper <laughs> deeper level than that and this is why discovering Basinski in, in the last couple of years has been so rewarding and going back maybe 20 years ago since I discovered Robert Rich and mm-hmm. I and all sorts of things in between and of course who can let's you know tip a nod to um you know the work Brian Eno did in the 70s 70s and 80s and um, I just think that that sort of music is uh, mining a very rich vein right now. Mm-hmm. All, all colours and moods, you know, from dread to longing is, is an expression I've often used, you know, in, in the, the moods that it um, inspires. And for me, it's very much about a slowing down of consciousness or the psyche, uh, an antidote to excessive activity or busyness. But it's a very... It's been taking place over a long period of time but it's very palpable for me that that's music that i come back to that really resonates in, in on every level you know in every sense of that word in a way that i quite often find now rock and pop even tracks that i love just to be a bit too grating too too much too gyrating oh absolutely and i i <laughs> i'm glad to hear you say it because i've been thinking oh my gosh am i getting old um you know or maybe I've just heard, you know, my favorite pop music too much, too many times. So it, it, 
the shelf life has expired, but I've, I've gone through over the past few weeks and have listened to some drone recordings or ambient music recordings that I haven't listened to in, you know, say a year or two years. And um, I, I, I'm not getting tired of that. And that's something because uh, uh, I, I thought forever that I would want to listen to my same British post-punk bands. Uh, and it, it's not that I, I, I dislike them now, but I, I think I'm in the same position as you where I just, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with what they're giving me anymore. But it, you know, history is tricky right now. We're in a weird place. Okay, well, just to give listeners a flavour of what I'm talking about, um, one of my favourites, uh, early morning and indeed late night um, works, is by uh, the aforementioned Robert Rich. Um, his albums, Trances and Drones, which came out in the early 80s, they were brought together in an album brilliantly titled Trances Stroke Drones. And uh, this is a little segment from a track called Cave Paintings. Okay, that was just a little snippet of Robert Rich's track, Cave Paintings, um, as mentioned previously from the double album Trances and Drones. I noticed when I did the aforementioned interviews with Grafton Tanner that when he, uh, he gave me loads of vaporwave things to go off and research, and when I was on YouTube looking at these tracks, when they got interrupted by YouTube ads, as these things invariably do, they were almost always really stupid adverts that would interrupt the tracks halfway through. They were all about conspicuous consumption, the capitalist dream, babes and BMWs and bling. And it was everything that the artists involved were kind of railing against or satirizing. And that, that continues. And actually the same thing has happened when I went looking up some of the artists that, that you've mentioned in your books. I said, oh, I've got to check this guy. You know, YouTube is a good go-to place just to get a flavor of something. And there they were, you know, all the adverts for, you know, just all this other garbage that we don't need. <laughs> yeah, well, you should get yourself that Google Adblock Plus because uh, it it, um, it works with YouTube, at least for the time being, until YouTube figures out how to crack it. And, and then you don't have to deal with the ads anymore. Well, one album, you named so many, and I've still got a list uh, on a post-it note of things that I'm going <laughs> to go and check out. But in terms of... Um, ambient music the darker end of it and electronica where it gets into sort of futurism you know again music that would once have been perceived to be the future but that now is a kind of a retro future 
and all of it having a kind of a timeless feel. There was one album I did check out that you mentioned that I just thought was amazing from start to finish. And you're going to have to help me out here. Um, how am I pronouncing Wano Tricks Point Never? Is that right? Yep. Yeah, that's perfect. Right. Wano Tricks Point Never. Okay, so I, the album uh, portrayed in the octagon, um, I mm-hmm. went to that straight away just because I like the artist and the album name so much. I just thought, well, this this has got to be good if it's called that. So I want to play a little segment from that as an illustration of another dimension of the of the, the genres we're talking about. And uh, then once I've done that, I'll get you to, to talk a little bit about the significance of that. Okay, uh, that was just a little segment from uh, the album portrayed in the Octagon. The artist won O'Tricks Point Never. I'm still not quite happy saying that, but I'll I'll get there. So that again was something that I went to because you mentioned it in Drone and Apocalypse. That's just a personal favorite that you've introduced me to. But perhaps you could say something about if that reflects, you know, something wider. Is you know, if perhaps that's a good example of something mm. that you've observed or a type of, you know, a trend or a sound or whatever? Um, in, in my book, I, I make the argument that um, when a trick's point never in, in, in that particular track is channeling um, kind of a history of electronic music that starts with Jean-Michel Jarre, uh, especially his, his album Oxygen from the late 70s. I, I think late 70s, maybe I'm mistaken. From yeah, the 70s. Yeah, 76, yeah. Okay. And, and continues uh, through Giorgio Moroder and then into the early 80s with the Vangelis soundtrack for the film Blade Runner. And uh, Blade Runner is particularly present in my mind when I listen to um, Betrayed in the Octagon. I, it's funny that it should be Blade Runner of all films because Blade Runner itself, the original, of course, is about um, Los Angeles in the year 2019 when all of the promises of space exploration and um, a new, better way of life off-world uh, have, have been shown up to be lies. And where Earth is basically a place where only the rejects uh, are remaining, um, it's, it's, it's a polluted hellhole, it's a dystopia. And the music that came out for that film in the early 80s was already kind of touching on this sense of retro-future before retro-future was a thing. Um, it, it sounds, 
sentimental. It sounds futuristic because of the synthesizers, but also hearkening back to a nostalgic past. So when when a tricks point never refers to this same sound world with with his tracks, it's it's almost like you're doubling up on the retro future aspect. Um, it, it it just it, it's it's kind of a the same uh, experience as having uh, mirrors that are facing one another, and you can look almost into infinity if you see the number of uh, reflections that are kind of stacked one after another. Well, to the extent that the future techno utopian fantasy world that you referred to uh, in Blade Runner is revealed as an illusion. There's, you know, it's always just around the corner. I mean, witness phenomena like the Mars One project now, which is always just about to get started uh, colonizing Mars. Pretty much everything that Elon Musk comes out with, which will be coming soon. Watch this space. Don't call us, we'll call you. Right. Um, The other side of that is that for millennia, there's been the concept of the always imminent apocalypse uh, I'm sure you'll know the history of the apocalyptic idea. Um, it's, it's always coming, whether it's a comet or whether it's a returning prophet or whatever it happens to be, or whether it's you know uh, more modern ideas of you know environmental collapse. It's always just about to happen. So everything from 2012 through to like resource depletion, it's always just about to happen. How do you think that's played into our collective psyche um, over time? And by extension, then into artistic expression, you know the sort of the cultural artifacts that have come from that it's a great question and it depends entirely on when and where we're we're talking about i think you know we're all we're all aware of our own personal impending death and um those of us who who have you know taken any history classes we we have been trained to think about uh death not only as something that affects individuals that affects individual life forms, but that can affect societies. And more recently, that can, that can even affect entire species, ecosystems, etc. cetera. Um, the, the awareness of death has always been with us. And you know, arguably, that's something that distinguishes us from uh, other animal forms, which have an instinctual fear of conditions that can bring about death, but don't seem overly uh, troubled thinking about death when everything is fine and they're eating or appropriating. Um, so it, I think it's, again, we, we, we think about apocalypse differently now because there are different means to apocalypse and um, we seem to be developing better and faster ways of making it happen. But it, it, you're right, it has always been with us. Um, and the, the few times in history where our, our cultural records don't seem to be reflecting quite as much uh, concern with it. It actually seemed to correspond to the moments where people were just concentrating solely on surviving. <laughs> they didn't have time to worry about it because they were just trying to get through from one day to the next. Yeah, I think that the apocalyptic um, instinct is in many ways the wish for a blessed relief from kind of grinding mm-hmm. misery. And I do wonder if some of the um, apocalypses that uh, people have inv- 
in, envisioned down the years and some of the contemporary visions for what the future may hold for us won't end up a little bit like a Blade Runner type scenario. That is to say that it won't all just end in, in a blackout, but it will actually just be you know a step down process of mm-hmm. of decay. I was reminded very much one of the earliest books I read on this subject. It's a 1966 novel by Harry Harrison called Make Room, Make Room. Later made into the movie Soylent Green. And All it, right. <laughs> it's set in 1999 in amidst social and environmental collapse. And the book actually ends on New Year's Eve, 1999, amid, amid a sort of perverse combination of celebration and desperation where you have the tiny little uber-rich elite celebrating another new year and then you have this desperation of the downtrodden masses who are like you know well there's nothing to celebrate here it's it's more of the same for us and then there's a few kind of apocalyptic cult type people in amongst all of this who cannot believe that the world has not ended at midnight on 1999 because something has to change and I I mention all of that not just being reminded of the book but thinking now about you know you said earlier about when you'd written the book and you didn't have an election outcome to comment on, obviously Trump now being US president. And I, I see that the mindset I've just spoken about being ramped up a little bit. You know, there's this something has to change. And I do see people, uh, you know, willing on something like, I, I don't care what it is, just give us something dramatic. Just give us something different, some some fresh hell, just not this hell. Right. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's interesting because I... I don't know to what extent that uh, facilitated Trump's election, but you, you had, you know, arch leftist thinkers like Zizek uh, being asked, well, if, if you could vote, if you were an American citizen, for whom would you vote? And he said Trump without a question, not because I support Trump's policies, not because I support Trump's racism, but because the supposedly more palatable uh, solution of Hillary Clinton will just accelerate more of what we already have, and, and neoliberalism is, is by no means doing anything for us. Um, now, that, now that the election has happened and we've had Trump for over half a year, um, the, the, the cry, give us something different, will assume new dimensions, and I don't know who the, the replacement will be. Um, you know, same thing with Brexit. Uh, it's um, the give us something different um it is kind of a, a, a mobile position. Um, it's it's basically any anywhere but here, it, and it works insofar as it's a, a gesture of negation. Yes, yeah, that's very important. I was wondering, you know, the, the extent to which the the two books are fictional. I'm essentially an optimist. Okay, I will say that. Not a mindless one. I will also qualif- mm-hmm. qualify it by saying by adding that, but. Um, how much of this in the books is actually you? How much of it's just you? Know, well, this is actually what I think. I think it was how I thought at the time of writing them. I I feel a little bit better right now, um, and I I don't have any concrete reasons for feeling better. But I think that when I was uh, writing the drone book, especially, uh, I just had a sense of you know what you just identified as the grinding down. Um, I don't think. I, I really don't think that there is an impending apocalypse, but I think that things will, for, for much of the world, get worse um, as, as climate change uh, continues and um, its, its effects are, are felt unevenly. Um, 
that said, I mean, you know, for me, that the, the the issue of greatest concern is is the population, the world's human population, um, and I would like to think that Elon Musk will solve all of our problems, but I, I don't see that happening quickly enough uh, for such great numbers of people to make Earth all of a sudden a uh, a a, <laughs> a breathable, you know. Uh, possibility in in 100 or 200 years. So I'm, I, it's a mixture of optimism and maybe just guarded optimism. Maybe some of the dread and the longing that I spoke about earlier. Well, I think whatever happens, the sound of the apocalypse will continue to unfold. And I think we can definitely look forward to a lot more exciting music um, along the lines we've been discussing. Yes. Yeah, that, that's for sure. Okay, Joanna. So today we have been talking about ideas spinning off from your book's um, anatomy of Thought Fiction and also Drone and Apocalypse. Those are both widely available, all the usual outlets. Um, perhaps there's something that you'd like to add at the end. Maybe you're working on a new project. Tell people about your website or just anything else you'd like to put out there. Sure. Um, I'm writing a novel right now that uh, is the third uh, in the series of, of this fictional group called the Center for Humanistic Studies. They are the folks... 200 years in the future who are looking back at the present moment. Um, this will be a fully-fledged novel with characters uh, and uh, dialogue and everything you would expect to find in a fictional novel, and it's about the disappearance of the university uh, from the United States, so stay tuned. It's uh, tentatively titled The Eden Collective, and I'll have updates about it on my website, which is Joanna Demers or J-O-A-N-A-D-E-M-E-R-S dot com. Splendid. Well, Joanna, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you, Greg. It's a real pleasure. <laughs>